Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host and fellow listener and viewer. We have a lot going on here at The Sacred Speaks, so I'm going to introduce you to today's participant, let you know some housekeeping details, and also what's in store for the next maybe three or four months for The Sacred Speaks. So I'll get started. I'll try to make it as quick as possible. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Dr. Edward Bever, and I'll begin by reading his bio just so we don't uh, delay, because this was fun. Edward Bever earned a Ph.D. in history from Princeton University and is professor of history and director of the School of Professional Studies at SUNY Old Westbury. He specializes in the history of magic and witchcraft, is the author of The Realities of Witchcraft and Popular Magic in Early Modern Europe, Culture, Cognition, and Everyday Life from 2008. That is this book. It was magical. Fantastic. Uh, let's see. And then he's in, the, oh, oh uh, and co-editor of Magic in the Modern World, Strategies of Repression and Legitimization, which is the book we really talked about today. Uh, contributed chapters to the Oxford Handbook of Witchcraft in Early Modern Europe and Colonial America, The Relig History of Witchcraft and Emotions in the History of Witchcraft, and pub published articles on the topics in the Journal of Interdisciplinary History, the Journal of Social History and Magic, Ritual, and Witchcraft. He is essentially a knowledgeable fellow when it comes to uh, the subject matter of magic and witchcraft. And it expanded my mind and sent me in a lot of great directions, so more to come on magic and witchcraft in the podcast. And thanks, Ed. Thanks for your time. Okay, so got a lot going on regarding interviews. I'm going to try to get through as many as I can. So we've... Um, uh, Deborah Deep Mouton is coming up. She just wrote a book called Black Chameleon, and it's a fantastic re-envisioning of certain mythological themes in her development, memoir-esque, but also looking at the the way mythology plays a part in our development and our the narrativization of our stories in our individual histories and our also collective histories. It was a fantastic conversation. Uh, we've got a, an interview with Hunt Priest and Jessica Felix Romero coming up. Um, from Ligare, but also Sojourner, and uh, that was fantastic. Um, upcoming interviews, Rachel Harris, her book, Swimming in the Sacred. Rachel is so lovely. I can't wait to talk to her again. I interviewed her a while back and am eager to, uh, to connect again. Her, her book, Swimming in the Sacred, uh, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground, is coming out very soon. Um, I am eager to talk to her. She talks to a number of um, elders in the tradition, f female elders in the tradition, ayahuasca primarily, and I'm just I've just always been a fan of Rachel, so I'm eager to to chat. Uh, Mary Casamano from Johns Hopkins, she is the director of Guide and Facilitator Services, um, and I'm uh, at, at Johns Hopkins in their um, uh, let's see. Yeah, the Director of Guide Facilitator Services at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Very eager to chat with her. Her reputation precedes her. Uh, my colleague and friend, Tony Bosses, certainly anoints her as a lovely human being. I'm eager to chat. Uh, and, then, and then we've got Eric Davis in the, in the uh, Ian McGochrist, um, Abea Gonzalez, from Sophia's, uh, what's her, Sophia's Cycle. I'm, I'm really eager to chat with her. We haven't landed on a date yet, but we're going to soon. And Thomas Moore is going to be coming back onto the podcast. So a lot going on, and those are just a few 
I've got a number of folks I'm in conversation with, so really lining up the, the calendar for the Sacred Speaks. So thanks for hanging in. Uh, thanks for connecting, for commenting, for sharing, for all your support. Really appreciate it. It's what keeps this uh, engine turning. Uh, just to hit a couple of details, check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. Website's out. It's running. It's fantastic. I've been loving it. Uh, music, check it out at the end of every episode. The theme song for the podcast is Clouds from a group called Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Uh, as always, check out the Young Center in Houston. I'm on the board, and I'm very involved with what the Young Center brings to the Houston community, but we offer a lot of classes online, so you can reach what the Young Center does from anywhere in the world. Younghouston.org is their website. Um, got a little bit of cool action coming up. We are going to be going back to Esalen in October. Um, Rodney Waters and I to teach a class on ecstatic experience music in Jung's Red Book. It'll be a little bit similar to what we did earlier in the year, but we're going to change it up and refine it a bit. So if you were at our previous workshop, come on back. Uh, if you're looking to do something in October, uh, I'll give you dates pretty soon, but we'll, we'll be back. And um, as always, it's great to, to be out at Esalen. Um, I think that does it for now. Um, yeah, as I'm thinking through, I don't think there's anything else. Oh, there is something else. If anybody is out there looking for a job as a therapist, uh, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, our sponsor in the boutique integrative wellness practice that my wife and I started many moons ago, we're hiring a new therapist. So if you know anybody, send them our direction. Check us out at vcenter4has.com. Links below to all of these um, endeavors. And thank you for your continued support. Thanks for sharing it. And thanks for all the participants who continue to, uh, to show up and allow me to pick their, their brains. So thank you all. And for now, we'll leave it there. Edward Bever, very good to see you again. And this is our, uh, this is our, our, what do we call a makeup, makeup match. Um, it's a <laughs> round two <laughs> round two. Yeah. Um, for those of y'all out there, we, uh, we, we took a first dip, but it's really nice when you can connect with somebody and go, Hey, there, there was more there than the time allotted. So we kind of put a pause on it and, uh, regrouped. And then that gave me the opportunity to read another one of your books, an edited volume. We're, we're talking about two, two books today, magic in the modern world, uh, links below, of course, strategies of oppression and legitimization edited by Edward Bever and Randall Stiers, and then also your book here, uh, The Realities of Witchcraft and Popular Magic in Early Modern Europe, Culture, Cognition, and Everyday Life. Thanks for both of these. Uh, how are you today, man? I'm doing fine, thanks. And um, you? I'm well, thanks. Good. I'm, I'm eager to, uh, to dig into this, the, the, the conversation of, um, of witchcraft and magic. And uh, I just had a conversation with Jeffrey Kripal, uh, a, a friend and, and, and colleague in this territory. We were talking about his new book, The Superhumanities, and looking at the, his understanding. I love Jeff's metaphor for like, we're all, we're all mutants. You know, magic is just <laughs> in, our, in, our, uh, in our veins, in our blood, and in our experience. We've just misunderstood what magic is. So to dig into this with you, I'm excited. And, um, and I think one of the things we can just start with <clears throat> is that general question what is magic and uh and then to use your title what is magic in the modern world and i if i could i want to quote um i want to quote from you or whomever wrote this um 
and you can riff on this, of course. I've got about maybe five quotes just to, to sprinkle into our conversation. In its many forms, magic explicitly foregrounds questions concerning the nature of the self and its boundaries, the capacities of the will and the relation of the self to external powers. When magic is suppressed, the self is conceived and performed largely as physically isolated and internally directed. The self is constrained into narrow modes of agency and power. When magic is embraced, the self is seen in far more expansive terms as organically interconnected with and permeated by various aspects of the external world. The capacities of the self are understood as participating in a broad network of material and spiritual forces. The choice between suppressing and embracing magic turns on fundamentally different understandings of the nature of the self, its boundaries, and its powers. Good stuff. So let's uh, let's dig into that around what is magic and culture and psychology and just take that and see where we go. Well, I guess at its core to me, magic is, how do I put it? Um, well, let me take a step back from it. I link, you know, shamanism is closely linked with magic. And yeah. I really like to focus more on shamanism because it's easier to talk about what it is without sort of being reductionist and without bumping into the many things that have been called magic in different ways. I remember talking with a bunch of undergraduates and I was talking about Mirandello and, um, you know, the Renaissance philosopher and the relationship of what he was doing with magic. And in the end of the in the end of the, toward the end of the class, it became clear to me from what one of the students was saying that they all understood magic to be stage magic. Right. So why was the professor talking about, you know, magicians getting up there and pulling rabbits out of hats and stuff, you know, and I'm thinking about something entirely different. So to start with shamanism, I mean, shamanism to me is, and I put it out in the book is, is altering the functioning of your nervous system to tap powers and knowledge that are not accessible in normal waking consciousness. And, and to me, this issue of consciousness is central because consciousness is both an epiphenomenon and a driver of neurological activity. And it's that neurological activity. And I guess one of the basic assumptions I have is if you're new, using your nervous system for one thing, you're not using it for another. So if you're using it to sleep, you're not awake. If you are using it to focus on a whole bunch of day-to-day -day tasks immediately in front of you, you're not sitting back and contemplating the meaning of life or the universe or, you know, letting yourself be open to thoughts and feelings that well up from deep inside of you because your brain is too busy juggling all of these things. And um, I mean, without any scientific real basis for it, I feel like I think alpha waves uh, which dominate our and beta waves that dominate our normal waking consciousness, right? Um, they are because our brains are doing so many things at once and multitasking and jumping from this thing to that thing. Whereas the long, slow waves that characterize meditative states and um, deep sleep um, are because our brains are not managing lots and lots of different thoughts at once and, and mm -hmm. bouncing between them. And so I think a lot of, you know, my, my understanding of magic 
hinges on this tune it, what I call tuning or fine tuning the nervous system. Unfortunately, the phrase tuning the nervous system was taken over by the uh, people who deal with the driving of the sympathetic or the parasympathetic nervous system to a state of overflow where you get both of them functioning at the same time and this ecstatic state that comes out of that. And so that's tuning the nervous system as sort of this gross, um, you know, use of the nervous system in a very particular and powerful and overwhelming way. But then I think of, of magic involving that, and that's kind of, that's the core of shamanism as I understand it. But, um, but, but in addition to that, there's what I call shamanistic activity, which is much, much more subtle and, and limited tunings of the nervous system to that also, um, produce, you know, magical effects. And one example, you know, I'd have would be the subliminal communication of hostility that people do naturally that triggers a stress response in somebody else. And that's kind of the core of witchcraft is that somebody can spontaneously project um, their anger through various facial you know, facial expressions, gestures, tone of voice, all these non-linguistic ways of expressing um, anger. And that triggers a stress response in other people. And again, it's linguistic, but it's not just linguistic because I don't know if you have studied mirror neurons at all, but, you know, 20% of the neurons in your arm, you know, that are connected with lifting something up fire when you see somebody lift something up. I'm making the 20% up, but it's something like that. And so there is a sort of unconscious visceral interaction. I mean, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, my father was a Freudian psychiatrist. And so I always see everyday life as this intimate dance that we play with everybody that we come into face-to-face -face mm -hmm. contact with, where we are signaling to them on all different levels about things. I mean, they've shown uh, studies of where people's eyes go when they come into a room and confront somebody else. And uh, there's a lot of sexuality in that, as I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so Freud was onto <laughs> something there. The first thing people do is check each other out as sexual partners or competitors. Um, and this happens unconsciously and, and automatically. And it influences the way we feel about people. It's not the sole determinant of how we feel about people, but it's a, it influences how we feel about people. So, so that kind of unconscious, to me, that kind of unconscious interaction um, is, is connected with magic. I don't know if I want to say it's a form of magic, but when it gets to the point where somebody gets sick, then it goes from being just ordinary um unconscious interplay with other people to a kind of magic that you've you have tapped this power you have to influence someone else's health by expressing your emotions toward them and and it can be used positively too i mean you know a lot of healing traditions uh, mobilize psychological forces and and people do things rituals that in you know that foster community and connection and support um, and all of these things have have you know unconscious meanings to people that can influence the their recovery and on the other side of that is witchcraft which is using the same basic processes or the same 
similar kinds of connections to project anger and hostility uh, and malice. And, and, you know, I guess I would say it becomes magic at the point that it actually works, that it actually either causes an effect outside of you or it, it taps in some, you know, on a divination, it, it taps in another, uh, a kind of knowledge or a, an awareness that you didn't have before, um, you know, by, by becoming sensitive to your own unconscious understanding of things in a way that you, you don't become conscious of in normal daily life. You know, you are influenced by those things. You're driven by them sometimes or you're, you know, channeled by them. But, you know, when you when you stop and have a vision, that's magic because that's now become a conscious part of your knowledge, not a not an unconscious influence on it. Mm-hmm. So you can see how I sort of, uh, you know, I, I guess I reject the idea that magic is sort of a residual category of all those things we can't understand that seem important. You know, that's kind of the consensus of contemporary educated understanding of magic is that it's a and people use this word it's a bricolage of of disconnected um things that are just the residue of what our science can't explain and i mean i you know i think that happens but and that's connected to it but i think there is a core of things going on that are at the core of magic which are not just sort of some random residuum of whatever a culture doesn't know how to deal with. But it has to do with this manifesting powers that are not ordinarily accessible to people by manipulating your nervous system through the practice of, of various rituals or, or you know, drivers um, and accessing knowledge. Uh, accessing knowledge is one and accessing powers is the other. Um, divination is accessing knowledge and and then various forms of malign and beneficent magic are are the accessing of powers and you know and it all to me it really revolve it's it's really triggered by or it depends on this manipulation of consciousness as a way of manipulating the nervous system and getting the nervous system to be receptive to knowledge that it isn't normally receptive to and to expressions of it like a vision that it normally wouldn't take the time or have the wherewithal to manifest to itself or to manifest powers um i mean a kind of trivial example but it comes to mind is i had a friend who was a mountain climber and he went to South America and he met up with some random guy at a base camp and was going up one of the Andes and they were going up and it was getting late in the afternoon and they were going up this like 60 degree slope and climbing up it. And then they got to like 10 feet, 12 feet from the top. And it was just a sheer ice covered cliff and a storm was coming in. They couldn't go back down. They couldn't stay where they were. And, um, what was it? Uh, Lyndon Johnson had a saying, I feel like a hitchhiker in a Texas hailstorm. No, you can't run, you can't hide, and you can't make it stop. And so that's kind of the situation they were in. And so my friend said, you know, he just like, he just was like, I'm going up. And so he started going up and he said that 
his consciousness just focused in on these minute movements of his hand and these minute features, like almost like a, a, a you know, a, a, a microscope. Um, and just he painstakingly climbed up this thing with a rope dangling and he got to the top and he pulled himself over and then he pulled the other guy up and they were safe. And it's that, you know, another example I'll give of a trivial thing is when I was a kid, I had a crush on a girl where I used to go on vacation and her brother was making fun of me and he was out in a boat about 50 or 60 yards away and I was on the beach. He was in a little rowboat. And I was really angry and I picked up a rock and I wanted to just scare him. So I threw it and I heard thump, thump. <laughs> you know, I never could have hit the guy. I was not a very good thrower. You know, I never could have hit the guy if I had intended to or consciously if I had planned it or decided to do it. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it was that that mobilization that my anger and all the feelings in an adolescent, you know what I'm saying. And so it's, it, to me, it's those sort of extraordinary powers that you get. And that's why I say magic, you know, magic doesn't depend on parapsychology. I mean, parapsychology is an interesting topic and I'm, I've explored it and read Jung on it among others. And, um, um, I, you know, I have my thoughts about it, but, uh, it's there's a whole range of things there's this whole realm of things which are going on which are separate from that or or don't involve that um where um you know it's it's a that's magic too and to me that's the the bulk of magic i mean you know mickey mouse with lightning bolts coming out of his fingertips on a in front of a stormy background maybe that happens to some people maybe there are people but to me magic is a very subtle and and it's a very subtle and not all that power i can be very powerful but in in most of the time it's a very subtle and fleeting and and ephemeral force and that's why, you know, that's why we're not ruled by mages with firebolts coming out of their fingertips, because, you know, we think of it as a kind of technology. And in some ways, ever since the Renaissance, at least, there has been this kind of interplay between between visual arts and writing and magic that has kind of jacked up expectations about it okay wait, hang, hang there because oh, that's sorry <laughs> that's interesting i mean you've said so much i've got all these notes okay. ready to, okay. like that we do have a jacked up understanding you know when i say shamanism or magic or witchcraft there, there are particular images that come to people's mind even the paranormal and one of the things i've that jeff kripal has blessed me with is a way to maybe pull back a little bit from from what is intimated by a word like the paranormal and and know that on some level it's weirder than the ways in which we've narrativized it um, but it's not weird in the way we've narrativized it on some level and so so unpack this a little bit around what our kind of preconceived expectations of magic are given our cultural lenses today well um i mean part of it is that magic depends on changing people's states of mind on altering their consciousness and one of the ways you can do that is by telling them stories and by jacking up their expectations <laughs> <laughs> and so magicians have been complicit in this process because yeah. it 
at least in the short run, it enhanced their power. Because if people believed they had these powerful powers, then they their powers that they did have were enhanced yeah. because they were reinforced. I mean, the old trope about witchcraft is, yeah, people who believe in it are susceptible to it. Well, I'm in my book, I am pains to try to show that while that's true, it's not the whole story. And people who don't believe in magic, who are not aware of anything magical, are also susceptible to the processes that that are at the root of witchcraft or the belief in witchcraft, which is the interconnectedness between my psyche and yours and the way that that can be, can be manipulated either through unconscious forces or consciously to harm you. Um, you know, if, and, and so, so that's, so, the belief in it is not the cause of the phenomenon. The belief in it is uh, is a result of the phenomenon, but it also is a reinforcer of the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And the same on the healing side, that, you know, if someone believes in the healing, it's it's not like, a, again, we always have this, we have this technological model of magic, like it's this thing you throw a switch and this happens. And anybody who's tried to meditate knows how hard it is to alter your state of consciousness <laughs> yeah. in a controlled or in a in a focused way and and you know so so we expect it to act like sort of one of our technologies that you turn it on and you rev it up and you blast away with it and um it's it you know it depends on on processes that you know, our, the manipulation of our own nervous system, the changing of our own minds. So you're, um, I want to return to something you said earlier about this, what we call mirror neurons, and that's that's our name for it right now. Um, what we're getting at is this, uh, the illusion of, of our individual selves, that we are, um, we are, we, our boundary is our skin. Uh, and and that's uh, such an illusion, and it's known in all kinds of intuitive religious traditions that are you know from antiquity. But now, because of technology, and and let's we're going to unpack this a lot hopefully today, because of technology and democracy and monotheism and the incarnation of Christ in human form, you know we have these belief systems that are that are connected with how how different an individual we are. But what you're saying is that there there's an unseen nature to our our lives and the way we function as an as an organism that is way more um, radically interconnected, so much so that I can, at a distance, have an effect on somebody's interiority uh, and their physicality, which if it doesn't baffle you, then you're not paying attention. And so let, let's talk about the limitations of our perceptions current day, you know, regarding the modern understanding of the individual um, and so on and so forth. Well, that I mean, I have a section toward the end of the the realities book where I talk about that, but also that's the focus of the article on, uh, on Descartes yeah. and, you know, that, that, you know, I mean, to boil it down, Descartes had bad dream experiences, unsuccessful dreams. Uh, the first one in that sequence related to malign people who were projecting bad magic at him and it woke him up. And then he had this somnambulant experience where he saw the room was covered with sparks and he was sore afraid and thought that it was, you know, and then, but then thought 
is this really happening or is it just my imagination? So he did these mental exercises and eye exercises where he closed, you know, he closed and opened his eyes and he determined to his own satisfaction that this was in fact really something going on in his brain, not something external. And then he was able to fall asleep and fell into a successful dream in Freudian terms. And um, I have to apologize. My father was a Freudian analyst. so I, I keep wanting to ask lean. you about that. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> I lean Freudian. Um, but um, anyway, so, he, you know, he, he, he had this successful dream in which he had conversations with people. And there's, it's more elaborate than that. But the basic idea was... He then lapsed into a, a successful dream, where which was very intellectual and very, you know, sort of intellectualized. And so it's this idea that you know, tuning the nervous system. Basically, he, you know, he started out, you know, bothered by fears of magic and and this dream, and he had an unsuccessful dream, and he woke up, and then he has a somnambulant experience, which is not that uncommon, but by by manipulating his nervous system by take, getting control of his nervous system and subjecting it to sort of rational series of steps to try in my mind what he was doing was he was retuning his nervous system away from being open to the kind of perception of the burning bush or you mm. know this fiery stuff covering everything and that that perception went away and was replaced with normal waking consciousness and then that allowed him to sleep and have this sort of series of intellectualized dreams experiences. And so to me, and not just to me, to the guy I, I based the article on, um, the Freudian person who wrote the original article about the dream um, without the neurocognitive stuff, but in Freudian terms. But, you know, basically the modern rationalist is trying to relate to reality in the way that the, a successful dreamer relates to their dream. That is, they observe it, they participate in it, but they are not viscerally attached to it. They're not bothered by it to the point that they wake up, because if they wake up, that's an unsuccessful dream and they want to have a successful dream. And so this whole and I, you know, obviously, when I was a kid, I went through my rationalist teenage phase. And part of all of this is my moving beyond that and, you know, a kind of steadfast faith in rationality and, oh, why can't you just be rational and that kind of thing. And, you know, having come to realize the limits of that kind of understanding in many different ways and through the connections I had with different people. But, um, you know, uh, I think in general, you know, the people who sort of, there are people who sort of cling to that belief mm. in rationality. There's a phrase, I, I don't know who said it, somebody said it, uh, promissory positivism, you know, it's all rational. In the end, rationality will explain all of it. You know, we can't really quite do it yet, but in the end, you know, you got to believe. And that, isn't that ironic? <laughs> well, define that for a second. What is the difference between rational and irrational? between rationality and irrationality irrationality how would you differentiate those well actually i think it's rationality it has to do with the proportion between reason and observation and there's nothing wrong with that but um it's come to be synonymous with a certain understanding of 
what logic yields and what experiences make up real experience, valid experiences. And so rationalists, um, you know, because it was it was formed in opposition to sort of the scholastic reason where you just follow the logic without regard to you don't do exper experiments, you don't do, um, you know, empirical studies. Um, in fact, um, in before science, you know, in Western civilization and Western tradition, there was a strong bias against experience because experience is ephemeral it's influenced by all kinds of extraneous things it's one of a kind it's uh it's it's, it's can be totally misleading you can't believe your eyes so really the only firm thing to hang on to is reason but you know the enlightenment rationalists realized that that led you into sort of which you know which trials among other things um that they didn't like um, on the other hand, you've got to have a theoretical superstructure. You know, you you don't have just a series of experiences and observations. Um, you know, you so rationality is trying to achieve a balance, which I got nothing against. It's just it becomes a kind of um, oh, what's the gaslighting? <laughs> That's a good term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned this, that I was just talking to somebody earlier today about the, the, the modern medical, um, there, there is a, a community of folks in the medical world today that are trying to take the subjective experience out of psychedelics, thinking there's a kind of medicinal use that's the effective tool. But then, then you have all these folks that are like, no, it's, it is the experience that's transformative because we are narrativizing narratives that are in the narrative and experiencing it. And, you know, then, then we go cross-eyed because then we're thinking like, well, well, we've got to externalize it and measure it and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm vaguely aware of that. I didn't know they were going to such extremes as to try to get rid of, but you're right. I mean, if they could, if they could extract chemicals out that would cause people to have psychedelic experiences without actually experiencing psychedelics, um, that would be the best thing for as far as they're concerned. And you're right. I, I, I agree with you. I think they're chasing, a, uh, chasing a, a, a ghost, you know, because if you get rid of the experience, you're getting rid of a, a substantial portion of what it is. Um, I guess the idea would be you just take this this modified limited LSD and suddenly you're at peace without all the messy. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just better, you know. <laughs> it's it's kind of I mean I'm I'm at risk of speaking way far afield here, but it seems absurd to me that that you know the the experiences. Now, granted, I I hear your. Um, your warning, maybe if if that may be strong, but that to accept one's experience as absolute truth is problematic. Mm -hmm. But but then to to deny someone's experience as not verifiable truth is problematic. You know, so this yeah. this dance between the rational and the irrational is really what I think you're you're after in so many ways. Yeah, well, there's another dimension to it, which is that rationality again by convention seeks sort of statistical meaning statistical patterns long-term 
knowledge effects and and magic or irrationality, but magic in particular, because uh, I mean, magic can be rational too, but anyway, we won't get into that. Um, but uh, <laughs> but in a way it can't, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Anyway, what was I saying that, um, oh, just about the time frame. I mean, it's like statistically the best thing to do if a cave bear is attacking you is to freeze. Let's say, I don't know that it is, but let's say that it is that uh, over time, you know, the best thing to do is to freeze and let it get bored looking at this inert thing and go off and find something that runs away from it so that it can chase it and know that it's getting dinner. Yeah. I mean, that's not very accurate, but the, that idea, but in one instance, there's a tree over there. You think you can make it. So you make a break for it and you run and you climb up and you survive. Mm -hmm. You know, um, on the other hand, you know, if you pretend you're a statue and you flinch the slightest bit, the cave bear notices that you're really animate and eats you. Um, you know what I mean? So it, it's like the the singularity, the one time effect rather than worrying about what's true over time. It doesn't worry about what's true. It worries about what's effective, mm -hmm. what gets the job done, what what you know, what achieves the end state that you're looking for. And even if it's a one in a million chance, if you hit that one in a million, you know, you're lucky. You're just <laughs> good for you. You know, and that's the magic. If you try to do it every day, you'll fail. But it is, it, but that's why it seems to come out in these pressured situations. Like my throwing that rock or my friend being able to climb that 12 foot ice covered cliff, you know, it, it it takes an extreme emotional state yeah in order to 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 focus you and galvanize you know get your nervous system to configure itself in a way that's conducive to achieving that and then you can but so let's wait, let's say this uh, because this is important if if our entire scientific paradigm is built around the idea of replication in a in a closed system and then we have these dynamics that play themselves out in ways that are not subjected to a closed system, we can't measure it. And so what we tend to do is say, <laughs> let, let, let's well, get rid of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, even worse than that is not being able to measure it is, I mean, if you, if, let's take a step into the paranormal. If you think that there really are paranormal effects of people can, you know, like psychokinesis, mm -hmm. then every experiment ever done is potentially invalid because the experimenter by sheer force of will could have influenced the outcome of that experiment um, and gotten the result that he or she was looking for. And that's what I think that's one reason why magic is so fundamentally incompatible with modern educated modernity. I mean, I know from the book I did with Randall or we edited with Randall, that of course there's a lot of magic in modernity but this limited understanding of modernity going back into the enlightenment tradition and the 19th century rationalists excuse me Bless you. um you know it's that's just incompatible with with the paranormal because the paranormal subverts it. it it says you can't have an isolated experiment in fact the only thing you can do is if you do enough different experiments by different people their psychic 
conflict, their psychic influences will cancel each other out mm. and you'll get the, the actual phenomenon by process of elimination. Um, but anyway, that's the, so. Well, I want to introduce a word that of course is something that came up for me as we were talking, which is placebo that we, you know, when I was talking about how we just kind of toss it out, it goes under this heading of that's just a, Young, Young wrote a lot about this. He said it nothing but, you know, it's nothing but a placebo. And I want to say, well, that doesn't say a damn thing. You know? <laughs> well, it also, it's dismissive of something extremely yeah, powerful. Totally. I mean, it, to say it's nothing but a placebo is to say this whole domain or this whole dimension of healing, you know, that's that offends our sense of rationality. It, is, it offends our sense of individual agency. It defend, offends our sense of, you know, I mean, there are people who make the argument that, that you know, it's, it's unethical to use placebos for a, for a practitioner to, to try to invoke the placebo effect because mm -hmm. it's deceiving the, you know, and that patients should have a clear-headed, rational understanding of what's happening to them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's so bad i don't i mean i don't i don't like i understand we need to have ways in which we categorize and conceptualize and these various kind of roadmaps that we make but to, to then say that because something doesn't make sense that we have no way of understanding it i i i, I well, that's why i want to talk to people like you that like make a <laughs> make a well, bunch of pages out of looking at this well, I had a very revelatory experience once for in doing my research. I I ended up looking through a, a medical textbook, a general medicine textbook, and what I realized is it's all organ systems. Yeah. No wonder they don't want to talk about the cycle, the pervasive, or or they have difficulty talking about the pervasive psychological influence or the interplay between psychological, sociocultural influences and mm. and bodily health because. The way they organize their knowledge is as a whole series of discrete organ systems, mm -hmm. which, you know, I mean, it makes sense and it's been very powerful and I'm not knocking it, but it did make me understand why it's taken a long time and it's proven, you know, difficult to integrate the kind of traditional Western allopathic medicine and these other traditions because, you know, they are they you know the the psychological one the spiritual one requires a fundamentally different approach to the issue of health and and it doesn't fit easily into you know although you know they could do it. there there's more people can do and I, I i'm sure are doing like you know there are hormonal hormonal dimensions to psychological states mm -hmm. which would have an influence on the digestive system would have an in and they know these things you know i mean it's not that this is all hidden it's just you know how do you organize it and how do you integrate knowledge that comes out of one kind of fundamental form of organization with knowledge that comes out of and embodied in a radically different form of organization so yeah, you know, I I talked with Tanya Lerman once, and she she wrote a wonderful book called When God Talks Back, and also did a uh, I think her her dissertation on a coven of witches that she was connected with in England. Mm -hmm. She was at Oxford, and yeah. um, I, what she what was so great about one of the things she said, she said, you know, I lived with these 
witches and really weird things would happen. And it was, I, I couldn't make sense of it. And then I also lived with these evangelical Christians who would like talk to God and pour God a cup of coffee in the morning and really weird <laughs> things happen. And it was like, I couldn't explain it. And so you, uh -huh. you start to see in, in it's transcultural. The, the, so, mm -hmm. so, so it, it, it's both related to the culture and, and built into the culture and also transcultural, meaning it'll show up everywhere. So um, maybe we can talk about that culture a little bit. And then I also want to get into the, um, you, I mean, this book, you, you, uh, um, you put out the magic in the modern world, um, goes through the from enlightenment to today. I'd love to do an overview of the kind of how magic has flowed from your article on Descartes on. I know that's a lot of questions, but that's just how I operate. <laughs> okay. Um, well, where do you want to start? The first thing you, you were talking about, Lerman, and oh, and the, well, I was going to say Levi Strauss talked about a shaman that he had worked with who admitted that much of what he did was fraudulent, you know, was uh -huh. just sleight of hand. But he was convinced, one, that he had helped people, and two, that there were certain points at which inexplicable things did happen. Yeah. And things that were a surprise to him were not part of the trick, but were extensions of it. And so, again, going back to the whole paranormal issue, I mean, to the extent that paranormal powers and forces may be involved, may be real, and may be involved with magic— you know, they're kind of the outer extension of it. They're the, the you know, they're an outer edge, not the core of it. Mm -hmm. The core of it is this relationship between our, our, you know, psyches, our nervous systems and knowledge and powers that, you know, we can tap by, by manipulating them. Anyway, um, then mm -hmm. the second, what was the second Part of the the you went on to yeah I was I was talking about oh. the to do an overview of the kind of modernity and and starting at well, Descartes you know on well I mean you know basically the point of the article I wrote on Descartes was that you know he basically realized that by getting control of his nervous system and tuning it in a certain way he didn't think of it in this way but by tuning his nervous system in a certain way he was able to avoid the uncomfortable you know, the uncomfortable experiences that he was having, psychological experiences he was having, and cultivate um, uh, uh, pleasurable and, and useful ones. And, you know, he pointed to that night and those three dreams as the seminal turning point in his life and the foundation of everything that came after. I mean, so this is not just randomly picking some set of experiences and saying, oh, isn't that interesting? But he pointed to these. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a big literature about them, of course. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, so, I mean, to a considerable extent, you know, one of the things I talk about in the realities of witchcraft is, toward the end is, you know, this became a social cultural program. It wasn't just uh, individual, but by individuals training their kids, you know, we train ourselves not to think in this way. And we train ourselves to reject um, you know, to not experiencing things this way, to not credit what we experience as having any importance or, and to not credit the outcomes of it to the reported outcomes of it or the results of it. And so it's, it's suppressed 
both as a body of knowledge and as a way of acquiring knowledge or of of of, of obtaining valid knowledge and and exercising real power in the world and so by the late 18th century one of the interesting things in the last chapter of, uh, about the suppression of magic i mean i see the witch trials in an important way as part of a much larger campaign that had started really in antiquity with the greek you know i mean people trace it back magic comes from magus the persian uh priests who were seen as a foreign influence in a way of sort of demonizing indigenous practitioners of of non-official cults um was to call them magi you know associate them with the evil enemy the the evil empire off to the east and um you know that that was the beginnings and one and you know there are kind of two tools that are used in the repression of magic one is um physical repression punishment you know up to and including burning people at stake or you know whatever taking away burning their books or putting them in jail or exiling them or but the other one is to deny the potency of it you know and usually you know it's it's it starts with repression and then once the repression has succeeded substantially it switches over to denial and then that you know gets gets takes the campaign even further and you know the christian you know the roman empire tried to suppress magic at one point um and the rational tradition going back to greek philosophy um always had a skeptical tradition uh, which denied the reality of these things and just said it's all in your head. And, um, you know, in the Middle Ages, um, you know, the church basically used denial because it was very weak. In that case, it didn't have the the ability to suppress magic. I mean, this is kind of a broad brushstroke reading I have out of it, that, you know, in the high Middle Ages, I mean, in the early and and high Middle Ages, the, the you know, the, the government, secular and religious together didn't have the power to suppress magic i mean they did have out they did outlaw it they didn't allow um you know whole pagan cults to exist but individualized magical practitioners were scattered throughout the countryside and practiced and they emphasized the illusory nature of it and you know this famous canon episcopi um you know the medieval church had what was called the episcopi tradition I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but anyway, um, you know, that that basically said that women who believe they ride at night with Diana are subject to delusions, that this is delusional and it's a diabolic delusion that, that, you know, people are hoodwinked by the devil into thinking they're getting powers that they don't have. And then in the early modern period, it just so happens that the witch trials happened at the time when the secular governments were gaining enough power over the countryside that they could actually conceive of actually suppressing these sorts of things you know in yeah, can i jump in here real quick because there's there's something of interest here because we're back to that earlier thread we were talking about alternate states of consciousness and the 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 psychedelics and the subjective experience of that and there are some who would assert that riding on the wings of the devil or whatever the practice is um that witches quote witches were using dildos as applicators to to bring some kind of substance which could create a psychedelic experience essentially 
and that what was then demonized, as we were just saying, is kind of in modern times today too, are these folks that are connected with alternate states of consciousness and creating these rituals and practices that involve alternate states. Where does that take us? Yeah, well, um, I mean, that, Michael Harner was the one who was talking about people, women using dildo, you know, broomsticks as dildos. And mm -hmm. I never ran across anything that suggested that, but there definitely, you know, I have a whole chapter in my book uh, where I talk about uh, experiences, diabolic experiences, and I talk about the use of hallucinogens. Mm -hmm. And I mean, my conclusion is there definitely were ointments out there. I mean, they have recipes of them and people made those recipes and there were cases where people applied them and were observed applying them. There were cases where people applied them and reported what they saw and experienced. And um, I mean, I found in the archive in Württemberg a couple of cases that seemed like to me the best ex explanation was in one case that a young man had gotten a pot with some stuff in it and had used it one night when he was kind of uh, uh, at his wits ends about what to do and um, ended up ended up uh, putting himself in jail. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you read that chapter, but uh, there's yeah okay. And then um, but then there was also this group of teenagers who went off to the strawberry patch and ate what sounds like bread that had ergot mm -hmm. in in it. And I mean, the thing, um, the thing to keep in mind is that we tend to think of it like drug or not drug, or, you know, did they have psychedelics or didn't they have psychedelics? And, and the fact is that there was a whole range of understanding of, of plants and, you know, things that could have influence on people's bodies and minds. And for example, ergot was used routinely in childbirth because it constricts the blood vessels. And so midwives would use it to, to suppress bleeding when, a, you know, if a woman, um, you know, was bleeding and, and people knew, uh, you know, and, and, um, you know, the, the, uh, solanaceous herbs as well they were used in in medicine and so it's not like oh did people know about these or not or were these things used or not it's like yes people knew about these things and they used them and the controversy is people who say you know oh but they never used them to get high you know they just used the part that that <laughs> yeah all of humanity would never <laughs> suggest that they used them to get high sure. yeah exactly <laughs> I, I mean it's I, I understand where it's coming from, and um, I don't know. I don't agree with it. I mean, I think the evidence is overwhelming, and I think the evidence in the cases that I cite was very strong. I mean, the, these girls, you know, they described um, special, peculiar pieces of uh, grains, you know, peculiar grains that they ate. And they went out and they ate them, and then the girl, one of them was found dancing wildly in a in a field, you know, later by a couple of women. I mean, it's like, I don't know. Do, do we dig her up and see if we can find traces of the chemicals in her bones? I mean, at what point do you, the, in fact, Württemberg, I don't make that much of it, but Württemberg actually had a, an ordinance in the 17th century that it passed against the cultivation 
the propagate the cultivation or the propagation and consumption of henbane. Uh-huh. They actually had a law against cultivating and consuming henbane. And it came out of a case that was adjudicated. I couldn't find the original case, a neighboring small prince of, you know, small territory that was autonomous brought to them a case where a girl had subject been found of take, taken henbane and and you know had had deleterious effects from it or mm-hmm. you know taken to the doctor like someone with a bad trip and unfortunately i was never able to get to the root of it like was this something she did on purpose it's always possible that she just ate it by accident i mean right. without knowing i can't really say whether it was deliberate or not but it does the wording of it sounds you know the, against the propagation and consumption of henbane i mean you don't you don't make illegal something that people consume by accident right you make a law against it usually when when you think people are doing it on purpose mm-hmm. and and so that's another piece of evidence but again this young man and the description of his stories and i used arrow arrowwood's uh, experience vault i don't know if you are familiar with that online it's just people who've had various drug experiences mm. with all sorts of different things write about experiences and i found people modern people with no connection to any of the sources that i have describing analogous things to the descriptions of what you know what this guy said his experience was and um you know uh, so i think to me there's no question people were aware of these well we know people were aware of them because the recipes existed but people were making those recipes and we know people were raising them because we have good evidence of people having made them and we know that people were taking them and and there are cases documented cases where where you know that's reported and differing circumstances several different cases are are reported and you know there's there's this clinging. There is a, a what I see as the sort of last ditch denial attempt is to say, well, this was just descriptions. This was just words. People told stories. This was just, you know, they they were repeating things. People try to trace it all back to Apollonius and the the golden ass. I think it is where this guy, you know. Uh, observes a woman anoint herself and turn into a bird and fly off and somehow that's the the source of a story where someone saw an old woman an ugly old woman anoint herself with this and and fall into a stupor and then come back and claim that she had flown well in apulius she actually physically transformed in the story and in the early modern one, you know, she just fell asleep and they kicked her and they couldn't wake her up. And she was gone out for, you know, 18 hours or something and, you know, for a long, long time. And then when she came back, she told them about how she'd flown across the countryside mm-hmm. and met with people and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I don't know. Um, I, I I feel to me, the evidence is overwhelming. And there was a network of people. You know, there were people who knew people, and that's how the recipes got passed around in different traditions. I mean, in, in southwestern Germany, ergot seemed like a, you know, I had several cases that I came across. That, the one I talked about with the two teenagers going off in the strawberry patch was the most, uh, you know, the, the 
the clearest and the most substantial. But there was another case where a, a girl, an old woman gave a girl a piece of bread and then she basically described it was seen dancing around and, you know, um, had this weird encounter with this red haired man. And she described these very fantastic experiences that she had. And, you know, I mean, do I know that the old woman gave her the bread intending this to happen? No, I don't. You know, how can I? I? I mean, the woman didn't confess to it. And if she did confess, we'd say she was tortured into it. And if she wasn't tortured, then she was intimidated into it. And if she wasn't intimidated into it, then she was uh, delusional and self-aggrandizing, um, narciss- you know, sort of blowing herself. You know, I mean, you can all... That's an interesting, uh, actually, that's an, it gets into this, one of the chapters of the book on magic in the modern world I really like, um, is the one about uh, why magic can't be falsified. Yeah, and that was what great. the author says is it's not just magic that can't be falsified, science can't be falsified either. It's like there is, it's not like an experiment is performed and suddenly everybody says, oh, you know, now we see the light. You know, it's like, you know, different experiments are formed, the consensus changes, the theory is adapted to accommodate it. There are some holdouts, you know, who never agree to it. You know, there were people who went to their graves long after Einstein, who totally rejected. In fact, can I tell you a joke? I don't know. Please. (laughs) How does science advance? Oh, yeah, I think I know this one, but I want you to say the punchline. One one funeral at a time. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I read I read a massive study on this that that science uh, the 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 hierarchical model of these folks with tenure and so on and so forth that they've got to die off for the innovation to happen. That's wild. Yeah. Well, the more benign one is one retirement at a time. Right. But <laughs> uh, let's go with the death. You know, may as well go for but... the gold. Besides, retired people still have considerable influence, especially in academia. That's right. So that's right. But well, and this yeah. this is a really just just to punctuate this for a second. Uh, Walter Hanengraf and Jeffrey Kripal have written a lot about the the what's what's left out of the academy. How many folks have these? And I've been I've been blown away in religious studies. How many folks that are professors of religious studies that have really wild experiences, but would never be a practitioner of that experience, you know, or loyal to that mm-hmm. religious paradigm. Uh, instead, you know, we, we say, no, we can't do that. You can't be a practitioner. You've got to be an objective statistician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a, a, I mean, it's a useful structure to create and to use. I mean, yeah. the Western civilization, uh, the world has gained a lot from it. I, I don't slight it, but it's not the be all and end all, yeah. you know, and that's, that's, a problem that I have when, you know, there are people who totalize things. When I was first in graduate school, there was kind of a Marxism that was totalizing, that Mm -hmm. this was the explanation of everything. Everything could be boiled down to Marxism. And now, I don't know what it's like exactly now, but, you know, in the last generation, it was sort of semiotics. Mm -hmm. Everything is just a constellation of symbols that people create. And, um, you know that's what reality is 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 the the constellation of symbols that human beings create for themselves and 
you know, every culture has its own constellation, and so every culture has its own reality, and there's there's no, uh, in a way, it's like the Copenhagen uh, consensus on quantum mechanics. It's like if if we can't know it, it doesn't exist. Reality is what we know, and and you know, I guess I I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm both in postmodernism and in quantum mechanics because to me, I mean, Freud had the reality principle. You know that. At the very at the very least, if everything is just my dream, there are kind of two different qualities to parts of my dream experience. Some qualities, some parts of my dream experience, are things which are extremely malleable and connected to myself and the own internal dynamics of what I'm feeling and experiencing and thinking. And then there's another part of it that I can't prove isn't. All I have is my perceptions of it and my experience of it, but somehow it seems to march to a different drummer. You know, it does things that seem more distant from my control and my influence and my knowledge and understanding, and yet it does those things. And so I'll call that reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and the, the other objective reality and the other is my subjective experience. And I guess I feel like I mean, all knowledge is voyeuristic. It's just an approximation of this infinitely complex, infinitely extending reality that envelops us and with very limited, I mean, incredibly powerful and complex, but still in comparison to that limited, you know, neurological equipment, we do our best to model it and to understand it and to interact with it in ways that, you know, allow us to propagate and you know, have future generations come along and, and, but, you know, that's the, I guess one of the things I think about is, you know, the rationalists and the non-rationalists sort of square off as if one of them can win and Mm -hmm. there's a definitive, and my feeling is they're both very limited partial explanations for something which is way beyond both of them. Yeah. And the, (laughs) (laughs) and well and so i mean and in fact to go a little further with the line of thinking i i've been thinking about these that basically the sort of rationalist tradition i think of as mechanomorphic if if the other one is anthropomorphic it's mechanomorphic i love that (laughs) yeah and um yeah and and it's like yes, there is much in the external world and much in reality that operates in mechanical principles and is a very powerful way of understanding things, but it's not the only way of understanding things. And in another way, mm-hmm. I think of religion and and to some extent magic, but certainly religion is kind of applying. Well, much of this is applying theory of mind to the to what scientists or rationalists would consider the objective universe. It's just assume that you know, that the, that this physical space we're in and the objects in it are actually all animate and, and use the same set of cognitive tools that we use to deal with other people, um, to understand that realm. And of course, with some things, that's a very rational thing to do. Like with cave bears, you know, if you see the cave bear looking in a particular way, you can kind of infer some of the things about what it's, thinking and what it might do and it's more probable it'll do one thing than another so 
you know, there's a, in reality, it's not an all or nothing thing. It's like, yeah, there are, there are ways in which the non-human world acts in a way that theory of mind is useful to think of. And, you know, I mean, beyond that, I don't know. I mean, it's like, like I said, it's, it's, it's not like one or the other is the right heuristic to use. It's that each one has its utility, each one has its limitations, and, you know, neither of them is is likely to be completely satisfactory. Um, both of them have something to say. So, anyway. Well, there, there's, um, on this alternate states of consciousness thread, there, there, there does seem, like, what, what can you say about the... I mean, I might be a bit dramatic here, but the war on these alternate states, I mean, I, I can use that term only because, my God, you know, if you've got a bunch of midwives dancing under the moonlight, tripping, laughing and dancing, and then we say that's a horrible thing and we need to burn them, <laughs> what the hell is going on there? Yeah, well... um, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's kind of a crystallization process where, you know, society was evolving into more complex, more highly structured form. And there was a logic and a need for people to behave in certain ways within it to optimize their functioning within it. And the other way of doing things um, kind of got in the way it, you know, um, it's like, you know, what happened to the Holy spirit? Hmm. It took me a long time to understand what the Holy spirit is. The Holy spirit is the experience people have of oneness with God. Mm -hmm. And early on they decided don't do too much of that because then everybody's a prophet. And every, everybody who has a, you know, where do you draw the line? And so it became, you know, religion, Christian religion certainly became very formulaic and based on rituals and dogmas because those were controllable. And the Holy Spirit, you know, um, people do all kinds of wild things with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think in that chapter, where I talk about the hallucinogens, I say, you know, it's like you, know, you go out sailing on the devil's sea and you never know where you'll end up. You know, you embark on this journey and, you know, you can end up in the lap of God or you can end up uh, surrounded by dead bodies. Um, <laughs> you know, hopefully not. Right. But part of it is that, and, you know, and I have to say, I, I, I think... I think Christianity won because, you know, living in a world of magic is hard. It's a hard, cold world where power and and power is the ultimate arbiter and and you know cruelty and and you know, they're real things and they're acknowledged and and they are kind of sometimes accepted and channeled. And I I don't mean to Im impute a pagan tradition, but um, it's just, you know, uh, 
magic depends on your ability to to keep your head above water in in this constant struggle for spiritual power and survival and potency and and you know the christian religion is very reassuring i mean it's sort of there's a big daddy up there who has the best in mind and he's done things to help us out and you know if you just believe you will be you know you got a good chance of getting through unscathed and if you're scathed at least you'll have these psychological defenses that you know you're doing the right thing you're dying for a good cause you're going to go to a better place etc cetera, etc cetera. um and that's a much nicer world to live in than one in which there are shadowy forces at the edge of every firelight and um you know lurking out there waiting to suck up your life force and energy and use it for its own purposes um i don't know i, I don't and again, I don't I'm, I, I don't want to get myself in trouble with pagans because uh, I'm not trying to demonize them. But um, it is, you know, it is a harsh, harsher and and more exacting world when you're immersed in magic than than in a benevolent religious belief system. It's interesting because that that's essentially invoking the kind of social dynamic, you know, that there's, as population increases, we have this evolutionary need to behave and to um, n not kill each other and steal from each other and um, have have one voice, you know, not six, you know, like, uh, let's agree that there's one culture and society and let's bind together and connect. And so there's a social dynamic here that's important. And mm -hmm. that, that's, I, I certainly get I get that in a lot of ways. There, there also is a part of me that's really curious about this thing you said about a prophet. You know that that when you have a lot of prophets running around because they've been struck by a mystical experience, you know that's got to be a pretty wild, destabilizing space. Um, th there is a part of me that also has maybe I'm a I'm I'm in this cultural lens, and so there's probably some romanticizing that I'm doing around around magic and around kind of the freedom to. Um, the freedom to encounter an alternate state of experience and try to make sense of that and then also be a healthy social being in the world, this kind of both end. That, um, so, so push on that a little bit, that um, what is so uncomfortable around kind of this dark versus light magic as it plays out in a culture that doesn't have those kind of foundational... Uh, uh, gl the glue that binds us together. Um, hmm, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Can you rephrase the question? Yeah, I mean, it probably wasn't very clear. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we've got a bit of a dual dynamic set up here and that there's a, a kind of social function that Christianity provided for the culture to bring us together and that there were real problems around... Um, prophets and magi and all these various folks that are uh, um, that are more self-oriented. It's probably a lot more narcissistic than it is. Uh, I, I could I could actually get behind the fact that a world of magic may predispose somebody to disconnect from this from the social the social spaces, you know because you can't exactly be a 
a witch and live in the city city center in the marketplace. So it kind of you're you're I'm wanting <laughs> well, and you would know, you know. So I I guess what I'm getting at is this um is this well, I, I think I know what you're saying. Uh, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of magic is actually social in the sense that small groups do it. Uh, you know, small scale societies do it and small groups within larger societies do it. So it's not it's not completely a social, but it just puts a premium on individual experience and that immediate. Uh, it's funny. I have a debate with a friend of mine or uh, is would you rather be right for the wrong reasons or wrong for the right reasons? <laughs> <laughs> and and you know our culture is you it's better to be wrong for the right reasons because yeah. in the long run the right reasons are going to prevail and you're going to end up being right is you know in the long run uh promissory positivism um uh, but you know magic uh, goes the other way it's better to be right for the wrong reasons you may have a completely you know idiosyncratic and ungrounded idea of what's going on but if you end up accomplishing what it is that you set out to accomplish it was successful it worked and and so yeah i think um you know in that way you know basically you know modern society needs us to be widgets and yeah and and widgets that have a shape and fit with the other widgets and connect and reliable and predictable ways. And, um, you know, and magic and, you know, shamanism tend to pull in the opposite direction. They tend to get people to have these individualistic experiences and, um, to start listening to their own drummer. And, so, uh, so what sense do you make of what's happening in the psychedelic territory right now with this kind of explosion of these substances? You mean the use of them in therapies and stuff? Oh, oh yeah. Wait, I gotta... Yeah, no, I've read a little bit about that, microdoses and all that sure. sort of stuff. Um, doesn't sound like all that much fun. Um... <laughs> well, there's, I mean, there's plenty of folks that are doing these macro experiences. I mean, ayahuasca is all over the, I'm reading about it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, well, one of the things that's going on in, in industrial society is that, that, you know, we went through the age of, of mass, mass production where there's one kind of deodorant, which is, you know, now there are 20 different kinds of deodorant. If you go to the, you know, so our society is, evolved to the point where individualized experiences somehow are, you know, boutique experiences are somehow accommodated more, mm -hmm. um, partly because computers, uh, uh, you know, make us able to fine tune things much better, you know, inventory, you can have an inventory of 12 different kinds of deodorant, um, you know, the lemon scented one and the garlic one and the neutral one and the whatever um because you know it's easy, you know you don't need to just have that one that gets cranked out of the factory so right. so so society is evolving in that way um that's certainly part of it and um and societies you know they're becoming part, more part of our culture too i mean our culture now has you know 50 years of experience of these as a, on a mass scale mm. Um, to some extent, in 1950, you know that wasn't true. 
um, you know, the, they were very foreign and distant and not understood even, you know, either in a scientific way or even on the level of popular culture. But now, you know, we have three generations of deadheads to draw upon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's odd. Yeah. Cause it is what I'm hearing so much about are it, it, the question really is born out of this comment you make about the prophet, how there are folks all over the place going out, whether it's to uh, an ayahuasca ceremony or psilocybin or MDMA, and they have these radical mystical experiences and then are changing their lives and have been touched by what they would say. I mean, this is the language that a lot of people use is this divine experience or something mm -hmm. totally mysterious. Um, totally undigestible by uh, by waking consciousness, you know, um, mm -hmm. by typical normative waking consciousness. And to have that experience can transform one's life. And what what I notice is happening in a lot of spaces is people are there's a there's a lot of prophets. They're yep. speaking <laughs> for that experience. And so we, we, I, it just clicks when you said that. It's like, well, there, there are tons of folks who, I mean, they'll go out and have one experience as a, in a psilocybin context and then decide that they're a guide and they're ready to guide other people in those experiences. And I, I think I've got tons of issues with that, given that holding space for people is, a, <laughs> is something that deserves a lot of training. So mm -hmm. I, I, that, that's one of the things that kind of stands out about this idea of the prophet, that we are, we are all capable of it, I think. Um, but to, to become the prophet is, uh, is, is another issue altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, for yourself is fine, although not always, uh, I think of Charles Manson, um, but, right. <laughs> right. but, um, but yeah, leading other people is a, a different kettle of fish and I don't know. Well, on that note, how much time do we have? How long do you got? Uh, it's five twenty. We have another, uh, 40 minutes till Are six o'clock. Okay, you can go to six? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, good. I, I can go all night. We may, yeah, we may have, uh, you know, I've got a, a, a patient in a bit, but that, that's perfect. Yeah, actually. yeah. Well, well, that's... Maybe 25 more minutes and then we'll start to wrap it up. Um, okay. So, so it, it, talking about the institution, I'm reminded of what you, um, I forget who was writing about it in Magic in the Modern World. Um, this, the, the, the underground, uh, and if you just pay attention to what's happening in our cur current political uh, conversation. There are, you know, blood drinking pedophiles that eat babies and reptiles and, you know, all these very deeply, um, they're not, they're not new, right? These, these projections have been even way back into Greek and in, in antiquity. Um, what's happening is this eruption of the Illuminati, all these kind of organized structures that are beneath the culture that are that are um, in charge in some way and using some kind of ritualistic magic or ceremonial magic. So of course the Golden Dawn is one of the crews I was thinking of, and you tracked that, and you know, somebody did in the book, and I wanted to see mm -hmm. if you can comment on. You know, we talked about the Enlightenment and how magic has kind of flowed through the underworld of the esoteric and occult, um, and how it's emerging today. Well, I mean, in the nineteenth century. You know, it it became intellectualized in a lot of ways. I mean, it became part of a literate tradition. I mean, there were a lot of changes 
uh, and I'm trying to put them in order. The place I'm going to start is with tarot cards, which I talk about in my book, because at the very end of the time period I studied, like around 1800, suddenly there was a case against some women who had been reading cards and mm-hmm. never before had cards been read, no mention of cards. And I went back and I looked at the history of tarot cards and, you know, originally they were kind of a parlor game and they had a kind of, you know, like Ouija boards or whatever, a fun Mm -hmm. party element with a sort of uh, divinatory gloss to them. And they actually referred into a chart. You know, they didn't have the meaning on the card. They referred you to a chart. Uh, And, um, I'm trying to remember. Maybe I'm mixing that with something. Anyway, but the point is that, and I make the analogy. I say that you know, before that, people use the sieve and shears. You you take a sieve, you know, like a kitchen sieve, and you, uh, but one that can balance, and you balance it on a pair of garden shear type things. You know, like big scissors mm-hmm. on the point, and then you ask it a question like, "Who stole the bag of money out of my barn?" And they start saying names and when, when, you know, farmer Smith, two farms over is mentioned, it begins to circle, you know, and it's this isomorphic uh, effect that people have of unconscious, you know, like the controls the Ouija board. Um, and that was divination. And then I said, so the tarot cards with this rich symbolism, you know, these pictures and the, the, this incredible symbolism, 10 different lower cards in four different suits, and then the face cards, and then the major arcana, you know, you've got all these specialized meanings. And I said, you know, they were like, they were to the seven shears what the railroad train was to the horse and buggy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it was like a whole new level of, of magical technology in a way, um, you know, and just an incredibly rich field of things to draw from to, to, and, you know, they attempted to root them back in ancient Egypt and stuff like that's one of the strategies of legitimation that uh, Asperm talks about. Uh, he's the one who traced D. And so there was this mm-hmm. this attempt to create, you know, to draw on older traditions um, and create, you know, create what were felt to be authentic experiences, you know, ancient experiences um, that were rooted, you know, they were modern conglomerations, they were modern interpretations, modern ways of doing it, but they by and large, consciously or self-consciously rooted themselves, attempted to root themselves in traditional forms of magic and knowledge. And and they, to some extent, they grew out of it. I mean, I know, I talk with students sometimes who say, you know, oh, my grandmother came from Sicily and she was a, you know, a seer. And she, they, you know, the, the, a new a woman who was kind of a new ager in a course I taught on women and witchcraft. And she was kind of new age, but her grandmother was really right out of the old Sicilian peasant tradition mm. of of popular magic. And so there definitely was a continuity, but it there's kind of this this mixing of elements which uh, you know was very rich and fertile. Um then in the twentieth century with the Necromicon, which Dan Harms talks about, um that was just made up completely. That was taken out of a Lovecraft. The word Necromicon comes out of a Lovecraft uh, book from the 1920s and then in the 1950s somebody created this whole you know he took that name of this 
book and he built a book out, out of it and he tied it to all these fictional or, you know, uh, uh, new, new kind of ancient spiritual traditions that he made up or that he loosely linked to something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So in the 20th century, there was, you know, a more eclectic and, and somewhat cutting them the you know, cutting themselves loose from this need to be rooted in ancient traditions, although usually they kept some, you know, there's always an ambivalence or always a, 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 a an aspect of it because they do grow out of ancient traditions, you know. And, um, you know, even the Necromicon, uh, presumably Lovecraft was steeped in, you know, all kinds of knowledge of, of traditions coming before him out of the 19th century, and they were again a mixture of of actual old traditions and new implementations new interpretations new understandings of them um and then there's you know so that's one dynamic that that these guys talk about in the second half of our book the the other is you know using science science and in some ways i'm kind of uh, uh connected with that and some people try to tar me with that brush but you know of trying to find scientific explanations root magic in scientific understanding connected to science um and you know i don't i'm not trying to legitimize well i guess i am trying to legitimize uh, magical understanding by saying you know it's it's it, you know because i think it's true it, it, you know magic draws out unconscious knowledge it it manifests things that we know inside of ourselves and our nervous systems are aware of this but we don't know how to communicate it to ourselves so you know we have a vision and that vision informs our conscious knowledge uh or we you know we, we hear voices or something um but anyway so but there are magical traditions that you know that's that's a part of magical traditions that are more i mean i'm doing it to try to understand this as a science you know sort of scientifically as a scholar as a historian um you know to make sense of it in the sort of rationalist tradition other people working in the magical tradition try to draw on science to sort of legitimize oh you should believe this because there's the placebo effect so mm -hmm. I'm using mm -hmm. the placebo effect, you know, and the placebo effect has been scientifically validated. So therefore, if I can evoke the placebo effect, I'm doing something that even science would recognize as valid. And that may help some people, you know, suspend disbelief or engage belief and and get the benefits of the placebo effect. I don't know. But Anyway, the point is that's that's another thing that was going on in the 19th to 20th century, more in the 20th century. I mean, it started in the 19th century. There definitely were attempts to connect, um, you know, science and magic in the 19th century, and but it, it became seems, more common in the 20th. Yeah. yeah, it seems science fiction too. That was a yeah, yeah. Science fiction overlaps with fantasy to some extent. I mean, they're distinct genres. Um, science fiction sometimes we'll have magical type things in it but less likely more well, likely i guess there's just some there's a there's a fundamental question here that is a philosophical question about and maybe even metaphysical about what is true and how do we define mm -hmm. what true is and um what what do they say one, one plus one is three you know there's this 
the, the, this idea of uh, a Zen koan that I heard a long time ago, that if it's not paradox, it's not true. That, that we have to be in this kind of two-in-one, yin and yang dynamic, um, two, two, two seemingly opposing dynamics that are in unified existence together, forming one. And so they're both one and two. Like, th that seems to be a theme. That that there is a, um, I, I you know I stumbled upon your work through Michael Winkleman, and mm -hmm. he you know he was just citing from you all over the place, and I thought oh my god I got to talk to this guy, and oh that's good uh, and and one <laughs> one one of the things that he in his study on shamanism looks at is ritual you know as we're talking about placebo but ritual you know which which can't always work. You know, just because I, I bow down and touch my head to the floor doesn't mean I'm going to be freed of all my sins, um, you know, but in the right context, you know, right circumstances, right experience, maybe doing that has me feeling some degree of awe and reverence that cleanses me of some guilt or some issue. Mm -hmm. And then we say, oh my God, it worked, you know, but but it, it, it works and it also doesn't work. And that that's part of the practice. And so it seems like in, in the 20s, 30s, you have this underground movement of all these folks that are coming together to do this ceremonial magic in ritualistic form, trying to understand what this is, but also doing some wacky stuff in the process. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, yeah, in the mid twentieth century, there was uh, the Parsons, the guy from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That was I found a fascinating that article. Was cool. That was cool. Yeah, that um, was Eric just, Davis, right? I think yeah, that was, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I thought that was very good. Um, and, you know, this guy who was at the forefront of the space age and jet propulsion um, was also deeply immersed in the occult. And, yeah. um, I, well, I mean, again, it goes back to, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking it's really, it goes back to this complementarity of, um, you know, the rational and the mystical, the the mechanomorphism and the anthropomorphism and they do complement each other. And since e each one yields insights and understanding and, and enables you in different ways than the other, if you can tap into both of them in some kind of modulation or, or you know, um, drawing on the appropriate one at the right time, um, you know, that kind of optimizes your your operational strategy um, in dealing with the world. And again, that even both of them together, they're both just hoyeristic approximations. They're hoyeristic ways of organizing under uh, knowledge and understanding and, and mobilizing action. And certainly in terms of encompassing knowledge, even the both of them together I think undoubtedly leave out much, most, almost everything. <laughs> so, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, what do you what do you say about current? Like, where do you see this magic playing out current day? What? Um, it's interesting because, for example, poltergeists. I mean. My reading of poltergeists is that they are a psychokinetic phenomenon yeah. and they were linked to disaffected teens, you know, young people who are frustrated. I actually have a case. I think I talk about it in my book. I talk about a poltergeist case where um, there was this woman, a very active, um, energetic 
leader type woman who had a very debilitating pregnancy and she was bedridden and um, she was past due. And then there were some people, oh, the pots and pans are, you know, things started flying around on inexplicable noises and stuff. And so the, one of the town leaders, I don't remember the mayor, one of the top officials and his son went to stay with her. And while they were there, this big urn, you know, kind of flew off a shelf and and smashed itself in the middle of the kitchen. And nobody could explain how it could have been thrown that far or anything. And again, can't prove anything with, with 100 year, 200, 300 year old cases. But, you know, I'm going to go with it and say that, mm -hmm. you know, but now with all these psychotropic medicines that they give to people who are depressed or anxious or what have you, I won't be surprised if that kind of phenomenon, you know, becomes less common mm -hmm. and less frequent. Um, and the extent to which, you know, people disbelieve in, in magic, they will try it less. They will respond to it less. They will whistle louder as they walk past the graveyard. Um, and um, <laughs> that's a good image. And, and, and so that will diminish it. On the other hand, I don't know. I, I, I think the rise of, of, of uh, moving sound image entertainment and, and dissemination of knowledge as opposed to written things may actually foster it because, mm -hmm. you know, so there are countervailing tendencies going on and I don't think it's going to go away because I think it's a, it's a part of human dynamics, the basic, you know, structure of human experience and human nervous functioning. Um, I don't think that it's going to take over the world because it doesn't fit very well with uh, with the bureaucratic consumer, um, you know, homo econ economic uh, <laughs> uh, society that we live in. Um, but it's, you know, it's going to continue to inform people's individual experience and understanding of the world. Um, so anyway, that's you asked me what I think about the present and that's that's about it. I mean it it seems like it's it's enjoying uh, more legitimacy a sense of legitimacy than it has for a long long time and there are many groups which embrace it, you know, openly and uh, positively uh which is different even in the 50s, you know, it was kind of secret people right. skulked around and uh you know uh -huh. um uh, didn't talk about it openly and and you know uh it was a secret kind of sketchy marginal thing um well this but that's uh, changing. this uh, to quote eric davis actually since you were just talking about him he says durkheim's conception of the social function of religion instead looks at magical practices and behaviors as an expressive cultural communication whose meaning and effect should be judged in terms of symbolic or dramatic significance rather than in the causal terms of proto-scientific efficacy and instrumental control. That's what I call Durkheim's diktat. Um, <laughs> Durkheim just said, social phenomena have social causes. And I'm sympathetic to why he wanted to assert that when he did and i think that sealing off social phenomena from psychologizing 
uh, served a good function, but I also think in the end it's wrong um, <laughs> because, you know, psychological dynamics do affect social phenomena. Physical reality affects social phenomena, you know, cause and effect. And also I don't agree. I mean, you know, you've got to remember that 150 years of, of rational scientific tradition started from the premise that you have to explain why people believe something that isn't true. But I start from trying to explain what's true about what people believe and understand what's true about it. And I think it includes causal mechanisms, both on the psychological, um, you know, the link between people's psyches and, and, uh, and physiologies as mediated by their expression in various forms. Uh, and actions and um and then there's also again we've danced on the edges of parapsychology but you know uh, the extent that that's validated um you know there's also this direct physiological effect that we project you know we may project power out of ourselves and onto other people and processes um you know independent of any symbolism um, actually, it, it occurred to me that chat GPT may be the beginning of the, uh, because, uh, the beginning of the, the, a new level of victory for semiotics because mm -hmm. chat GPT is nothing but a symbol processor. It has no idea of what's real or unreal. It has no visceral experience. It has no, uh, corpus of physical knowledge directly from itself. It, it just predicts what word will fit after the last word you know most probably i love the episode yeah yeah <laughs> and so it's really going to be a it is a semiotic mechanism you know a semiotic machine and to the extent that it takes over writing and thinking for us uh we really will become semi-semioticized <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an argument for the biopsychosocial symbolic or spiritual model that we need to... And I, I, I stumbled into this when I was doing my dissertation when I realized that there are a lot of people that study religions that know there are different levels by which you can interpret any tradition. And what I looked at in particular was the historic, the psychological, the sociological, and the symbolic levels of interpretation. And most of the time that we have fights, you know, it's when people are arguing on different levels. You know, somebody is taking, you know, a religious tradition as, as an historical truth, and somebody else is saying, wait a second, this serves a sociological function, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that, to, to take the whole uh, as, well, not, again, back to the fixed, not paradox, it's not true, to let yourself have a little fluidity and not become so fixed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um... I, I think you left out physiological, biological. I said, yeah. <laughs> oh, you did yeah, say bi biological, biopsychosocial. Okay, okay. Yeah. Bio, okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's a good. Yeah, it's an did. important note. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> no, but you didn't leave it out, so I, I take that back. Well, I, well, I want to. Um, do you have anything on this? No, just that I, I was going to emphasize that I think it is rooted in in physiological experiences people have. Yeah, you know, and um, you know, they're not. They, it's like it's like eating and hunger, 
I mean, everybody experiences hunger, everybody eats, but culture informs many things about what we eat and when we eat and the way we eat and um, what makes us hungry and, you know, all kinds of things. So culture is very important. I just, you know, I think I was saying that, you know, when I was a grad student and as an undergraduate, Marxism was kind of this uh, mm -hmm. you know, this uh, hegemonic explanatory system. And then in by the 90s, semiotics had become a kind of hegemonic explanatory system. And I've run into that in some of the reaction to my work, you know, the people who just don't want it to be anything other than a reconfiguring of symbols. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, the, that's a sufficient explanation. And the odd thing is the vehemence with which they insist that you shouldn't do anything else, mm -hmm. that, that doing anything else is wrong and dangerous. And anytime people start telling you why you shouldn't look for answers in novel ways is a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good sign that you really ought to. Well, and that considering that's like the entire uh, first several chapters of this book saying that there's a kind of cultural <laughs> othering that's always happening. We always look to not those guys and not those girls, but uh, but this, you know. And yeah, what mm -hmm. a sociological function. Well, I want to be conscientious of our time, and I okay. want to leave room for you to get to anything that we're leaving out. What what feels like we're not tending? Hmm. I actually feel like we pretty much covered everything, you know, in between the last time we I... talked and this time. I had, you know, thought about different things I wanted to talk about, but I, 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 uh, well, okay, I'll talk about, to, to go, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I, I'm foolish uh, to talk a little more about parapsychology. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a paper about a, a ball lightning phenomenon and that was a, reported from a small town in Germany that I was studying. You know, there was this this fiery figure who appeared in the graveyard and... Um, People came and they stared at it, you know, this fiery thing. And, and you know, it, was, it took on different forms. Sometimes it was kind of round and like a basket. And other times it was tall and it looked like a, a figure but with no arms or legs. But it still had this sort of menacing sort of, you know, figure-like aspect to it. And nobody knew what it was and then people said well it started happening when this old woman died and while she had been an exemplary woman and had led an exemplary life or a perfectly fine life people began to think about things which had seemed a little shady or in retrospect you know she didn't always go to church and <laughs> blah 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 and pretty soon they thought she was a witch, and this was the devil warning them that she shouldn't have been buried in the communal graveyard, that, that you know, this was a bad omen, that she should have been buried out in the woods with the other outcasts. And, oh, and then, um, oh, yeah, and then it went in, and it went into her house, and they saw it move around in her house. And... Um, and and this was the devil she was a witch and this was the devil and that and then the government because this was in the in the mid 18th century the government kind of tamped this down that this was a diabolical illusion that the woman was not a witch she was just 
uh, you know, people were making stuff up in retrospect, and you know, this was the devil was trying to lead people astray to get them to hate each other and vilify each other, you know, and get this innocent uh, thrown out of the grave um, unjustly, and this was the devil's work. And then, and I said, well, but we don't think it was the devil's work. What do we think it was? Well, it sounds a lot like ball lightning. And the interesting thing about ball lightning is that nobody understands what ball lightning is or how it works. It does stuff that nothing should be able to do. Uh, there are various theories about it, but none of them really encompasses everything that's been reported about it. Uh, um, we don't really understand it. And yet it is to a modern scientific you know, uh, person, the most, uh, the most reasonable explanation for it, because it conforms in some important ways to the mm -hmm. way that ball lightning behaves. And, um, and so, but then I said, but, you know, but ball lightning is, is we use it to explain phenomenon that seem too far out. And yet we don't really know why it works either. It's inexplicable. And there have been people who've claimed that it's a mass delusion, that it doesn't really exist and and whatever, but they're pretty much outvoted. It seems like the scientific consensus is there is this thing called ball lightning and it happens, but nobody knows why, but it's better to explain something as ball lightning than something further out there, you know, that, that mm -hmm. we can explain as a UFO, oh, UFOs, it can't be a UFO, it must be ball lightning. Can't be, can't have been the devil doing something because you know we know the devil doesn't exist and blah blah blah. So it must have been ball lightning. What's ball lightning? Well, I don't know. We don't really know, but you know, we're more comfortable with it. We're more comfortable with um, with with that than we are with you know something like the devil. But it's just each culture, each group, you know, using an explanation which makes sense yeah. to it. And um, anyway, so so I am interested in that, the way people, you know, favor certain explanations and certain explanations fit with a complex of other explanations and is therefore more comfortable than, you know, in the early modern period, if you'd said ball lightning to somebody, they wouldn't have known what the world you were talking about. And, and it would have seemed totally foreign, and yet the devil was a very familiar figure. And so, to to explain this thing as the devil, you know, made sense to them. And um, anyway, that well, was well. Yeah, it brings up the the idea that we have these explanatory models, and we will always have explanatory models. And maybe I, I go a little Buddhist here, which is that any of our explanatory models aren't that thing. Mm-hmm. And that Jeff, Jeff Greifel said something last time when I interviewed him. Um, I said I said a, a comment about how we don't necessarily know what UFOs are. He said he he has he studies this. This is his domain. He said actually I just take out the word necessarily. We don't know. We don't <laughs> know, and nobody knows. Like there there's there are these phenomena that happen that are. Um, I think I think one of the things he would say is that consciousness or experience of our consciousness is much weirder than we can ever fathom. And inherently, there are these mysterious aspects to the ways in which we live and our religious traditions and the traditions outside of these you know, scientific paradigms have been the containers of these mysterious anomalous phenomena that, that, mm -hmm. we, that can't be reduced to that which can be reduced, 
which, which is only part of it. And there we're back to this wonderful dynamic of the, the explainable and the unexplainable. Yeah, well, it relates back when we were talking earlier about the the way that visual and and text depictions of magic kind of distorted our understanding of what it is. Um, somebody wrote something. And I, I wish it's one of those times, you know, when you're taking lots of notes and it's like, well, I know that I'm not really I don't think I'm really going to need this. So I'm not going to bother writing it down and attributing sure. it. But somebody said, you know, he basically wrote a very well-stated paragraph about how people will have this ineffable experience that's totally different they just and yet other people want to know they want to tell other people they want to communicate to other people and so in order to communicate it you have to sort of conventionalize it yeah, yeah. and you have to it's yeah it's uh it's like i remember i investigated a case that was purported to be about two it was about lycanthropy i was doing a paper on lycanthropy and it was two women who turned themselves into birds Mm -hmm. and when i read the case it actually wasn't at all about them turning themselves into birds it's that this guy had this altercation with these women and then later he had this sort of visualization of these two spirit-like figures that sort of looked like the bodies of birds but with no wings and no tails but just and they actually drew them in the document and it was really the archivist who sort of made those into birds and described them as birds in the archival index whereas at the time nobody was talking about them as birds they were talking about them as this was the apparitions manifesting these witches who were who were after this guy as he described it and so it's like you know like i said this this guy who wrote this this paragraph that i wish to this day i had copied down and attributed but you know the 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 more you try to communicate it the more you conventionalize it and the more you conventionalize it the more you distort it mm-hmm. away from what was really unique about it well mm-hmm. obviously away from what was unique about it and towards things that can be understood and 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 assimilated into people's larger construct of understanding and reality and um in the end you know you can end up with something that's totally debased from the you know like i think the the witches you know the conventionalized witch sabbath was you know uh uh, the 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 outcome of a long series of of things like that where very different experiences were gradually conventionalized and reconciled with each other and amalgamated into this cohesive you know thing that was supposed to be happening and then people imagined that it really did that really witches really did congregate out with the devil at the head of the ta- you know and out on the campfire mm-hmm. and stirring their cauldron and stuff and it was built out of many many pieces that really did exist but you know and and but also out of experiences that that can't be described for example this this uh this the young woman who had the peculiar pieces of grain from the kids who the teenage teenagers who went out to the strawberry patch you know she described going to the hoiberg that was one of the conventional things that witches flew to the hoiberg the hay mountain mm-hmm. and they had their ceremonies at the top of the the mountain and she talked about flying to the hoiberg and then i think 
well, you know, we talk about getting high. Nobody thinks they actually fly up in the sky, but mm-hmm. we talk about mm-hmm. getting high, you know, and and there are all kinds of conventionalizations that we have of these experiences that are really ineffable and totally individual. Um, and yet we try to describe them to each other. And so they're, you know, you end up with yellow submarine. Um, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's ineffable. Right? And we, we've got to, we've got to start closing out. Yeah, but I'm, I'm okay. sorry okay. we got to do that because we could roll forever. Um, I, I, I think what you just said about how it's conventionalized and the ways in which, and we can study this, that anomalous or mysterious phenomena is um, is conceptualized and and communicated over time. Um, you know that that we can study, and we know mm-hmm. for a fact that you're you're writing out this timeline, and it's certainly what we now have narrativized in our religious and occult traditions. Um, so thank you today for unpacking this. This has been a a, a real oh. treat, man. I, I'm I'm grateful for your time. Oh, well, listen, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoy talking with you, and I'm happy to share what I understand and the extent to which it helps other people understand things differently, maybe a little better. I'm pleased for that, and I'm happy you're doing this, and thank you for inviting me to do it. Yeah, thanks, man.